Welcome to In Reality, the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Scherenberg, a journalist and media exec, most recently the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Today's guest is Brittany Kaiser, now the head of the Own Your Data Foundation and an advisor on data literacy. You probably know her best, though, as one of the Cambridge Analytica whistleblowers. Cambridge Analytica was a marketing firm behind the disinformation campaigns that brought you Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. Like many others who were inside the disinformation ecosystem and then went public about it, Brittany's story is one of seduction by proximity of power, followed by disillusionment. We'll talk about why Cambridge Analytica's tactics were definitely not politics as usual, why most whistleblowers are women, and what has to happen to keep disinformation from driving us even further apart. By the way, if you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's free. Leave a rating and a review, and please drop me an email at eric at ericscherenberg.com. I'd love your feedback and ideas about who we should talk to next. And now, here's Brittany Kaiser. Well, hello, Brittany, and welcome to In Reality. So happy to be here. There is a theme going on here with people who've been guests on In Reality and in the news around the sort of toxic tide of misinformation and election interference and and all the news. A, a theme of people who got involved in Facebook or other social media platforms or uh, you know election data with the best of intentions and then backed out realizing that they were kind of horrified by what they'd gotten into. Uh, we've had Joaquin Quinones Candela from Facebook on the show, but also Francis Hagen and Sophie Zong, Facebook whistleblowers, uh, Chris Wiley of Cambridge Analytica, a whistleblower from there like you. And out of the January 6th commission, people like Cassidy Hutchinson. And so for the people who are not familiar with your story, how did you come to Cambridge Analytica? These were these were not your people. You were a liberal. You'd worked on the Obama campaign. You wanted Hillary Clinton to be the first woman president. Why why did this this organization appeal to you? It's probably uh, it, a less uh, <laughs> a less predictable route than some of the others. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I wasn't a, a, a data scientist. I wasn't um, someone who had specialized in running these types of programs or or anything like that before. But I had spent most of my career thus far in political campaigning and in training in human rights law. So I was a human rights activist and I was in my fifth degree, which was my PhD. <laughs> and I was specifically writing my international human rights law PhD on something called preventive diplomacy, which means how do you prevent crisis before it happens? My specific concentration is how do you prevent atrocity crimes before they happen? And it ended up that all of my research just came back to data science. So what data was available, who was modeling that data, and then who got access to that intelligence and how quickly all of those mechanisms actually functioned so that a head of state or an ambassador or the head of the United Nations Department could make the right phone call that could prevent something from escalating. Uh, now, I didn't know much about data science at the time. I had been on the first Obama campaign where I had participated and 
the beginnings of the intersection between data science and politics, but it was pretty basic. And so I, I uh, had a friend introduce me to the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, and he offered me a part-time job. So I came on as a part-time consultant in order to learn enough about data science to finish my PhD. You described that meeting in your book, uh, a now memorable, well, a memorable and now infamous statement he made to you to entice you to join was, let me get you drunk and steal all your secrets. Uh, was, was Nix a particularly charming guy? <laughs> you, you could call him that. It, in general, a lot of British people are incredibly charming. I think that's how I ended up staying in the country for 15 years. <laughs> but uh, really, I mean, he was incredibly convincing. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of people out there that call him a snake oil salesman. But actually, when I first met him, I thought he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, and he felt like the world needed to be able to use this technology. His downfall was that he didn't care who used it or how they used it. Uh, but the technology itself um, was incredible. And definitely Cambridge Analytica was on the cutting edge of experimental data science when I joined and really the intersection between uh, psychology and data science. So when, when I first got there, I thought, wow, this is incredible stuff. It'll make me a much better campaigner. It'll make me much better at my activism, at some of the impact work that I want to do. I mean, the first, the first ever contract that they showed me when I walked into the office was a contract for them to advise and train all NATO and allied militaries how to prevent young people from being recruited by ISIS and sneaking themselves into Syria. Uh, yes. So they were running counter propaganda communications once the data showed that these individuals were either vulnerable to or actively being recruited. And I thought more people need to know how to use this stuff. It's so important and could help solve so many problems in the world. I just, it took me uh, a couple of years to see the other side of it. Right. Well, the other side of it was kind of slowly unveiled, but also it took a particular turn when Steve Bannon and Robert Mercer came in and funded the, the spinoff of Cambridge Analytica from the original firm, SEL. So Bannon is someone that is a character in your book and obviously a, a major player in uh, the 2016 election and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if, if you will. Tell us about Bannon. By the way, Bannon, um, as we record this, is now undergoing jury selection for his trial for contempt of Congress. So he's uh, a, a guy who can't seem to stay out of the news, not that he wants to. What is your impression about Bannon and what he really believes? Well, uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting that you mentioned the phrase that Alexander said to me that's in the beginning of my book, let me get you drunk and steal your secrets because Steve, never said that to me, but he did used to call me the Democrat spy. And he, <laughs> and he used to think that that was funny, but he knew that uh, where my allegiances were. And therefore, when he was around me, I, I think him and Becca and Alexander kept a lot of their comments a little um, edited, so to say, because uh, they didn't want to offend me. They definitely, uh, they definitely were concentrating on being able to work with me, use me, whatever you want to call it, uh, in order to 
achieve their goals, which were a, a combination of things. You know, they have political goals uh, and then they had commercial goals. I think for, for Steve, it was just as much of a commercial venture as a, as a venture to put certain people into power where that was different um, for the Mercers. They didn't need any more money. Uh, they were just seeking power. Uh, so with Steve, what did he really want to achieve? I think he wanted to be able to show people that he could be a kingmaker and that he could uh, help get people where they were trying to go and build his own following. I often compare Steve Bannon to Ann Coulter in terms of no matter how offensive they need to get, they know how to preach to their audience. Uh, Donald Trump is in the same group. And so they know how to build a following. They know how to convince people to, uh, to follow them. They know how to uh, you know, say the right thing at the right time for the particular people that they know um, they can preach to. And so, I mean, it, it really showed that for Steve, he was, you know, trying to seek the highest amount of power that he could achieve himself. Um, one, you know, founding Cambridge Analytica was a backdoor way to do that. And then he had to quit Cambridge Analytica in order to, be, to become uh, the CEO of the Trump campaign. And then from there went to be lead strategist in the White House. Uh, and then when he was fired from there, he decided to do the exact same thing in as many other countries as possible. So he was going, you know, across South and Latin America, across Europe, uh, finding other people who wanted to do something similar as Donald Trump wanted to do and helping them put together their strategy and execute it. Now, I, I don't say any of that lightly because the type of people that he was trying to promote are the type of people that I don't believe should ever be allowed to be in power. Um, not just because I disagree with their views, but because their views are dangerous. These are people that actively incite violence and racial hatred uh, across the world. And so, you know, no matter what Steve's ambitions were, the way that he decided to execute them, I, I think, um, definitely uh, is criminal. And I think the last time that he landed in jail was probably, uh, you know, like getting Al Capone for tax evasion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, uh, he is facing whatever it is, 30 days for contempt of Congress, which uh, I assume will be simply a badge of honor for him and his followers. Uh, just for a point of clarity, you mentioned Becca, who is uh, Rebecca Mercer, the daughter of Robert Mercer, the billionaire who funded Cambridge Analytica. You, your description of Bannon's activities after he left the White House of you know, promoting other populist leaders around the world, I'm curious if he believes in that. Is he a closet white nationalist? Uh, that is a, a, one of the political positions that has been successful with his followers, or is he simply believes in nothing but power and kingmaking and whatever it takes to achieve those goals? Again, for me, it's, um, it's hard for me to tell directly because again, I, I think he um, uh, censored his speech when he was around me to make sure mm -hmm. not to offend me. So I don't know if I really got the true him every time I was around him. And so I just have to be cognizant of that. 
uh, for uh-huh. me, the first many times I spent time with him, uh, he wasn't offensive. In fact, I found him to be an incredible macro strategist in terms of, you know, here are how we line up all the dominoes and here's how we, we get them to topple over. Like he, he really knew um, how to line things up and what needed to happen before this, before that, in order to reach an end goal. And, uh, you know, I've, I find that in a way incredibly impressive when I first met him and I didn't know much about him at all. When I was first introduced to him, I thought, okay, well, he's one of the investors in the company I, and apparently knows a lot of people in politics in the U.S. And I had never heard his name before. Um, I was only in Democrat politics, but I also had lived abroad for 15 years. Um, so, you know, a random person on the right was just not someone that, um, that I knew who he was. And so I end up in his house and he's talking about all of the people that we need to meet and the certain people that are running and all of the people around them, the people in the campaigns and the people in the super PAC and how to, you know, infiltrate or get into those circles in order to get the types of contracts that we needed for the company. And it seems Mm -hmm. pretty straightforward. Again, these are all people that I wouldn't have voted for, but, you know, both sides of my family are Republican. Um, My parents are independent. And then my sister and I ended up being staunch Democrats for most of our lives. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't like people being Republican was offensive to me. I was used to that uh, in my family. And so I didn't really think too much about it besides, you know, I'm going to do campaign strategy for people that I won't vote for. And it it didn't seem that bad at, at the time. It, it, it strikes me that uh, Bannon and Mercer were aware of your actual political leanings, and yet they trusted you to do work for them. They must have truly believed that you were quite talented. What exactly did you do for Cambridge Analytica? Uh, so I was the director of business development for most of the time I was there. So I was hiring and training sales teams of people that had high-level connections uh, in different places in the world. Um, Most of the first few years I was there, I was concentrated on international politics. So I was working in Europe and South and Latin America and Africa, uh, specifically because I was a Democrat and I didn't want to work um, for their US clients. But eventually I was told, hey, you know, Cambridge Analytica in the US is vastly expanding. Uh, You're the only full-time American that works for the company. So if you're if you're willing to go work there and do the do the same thing, then you can live near your family, you can have a raise, you can help build entire offices, and you know it's a it's an opportunity for you. Otherwise, you're just you know a, a salesperson in London, basically. Um, and you know, salesperson is I guess what it was, but it was pretty high level work still. I was meeting with presidents and prime ministers or people that wanted to be president or prime minister and their teams, entire political parties, governments, militaries, C-level executives of uh, Fortune 500 companies, and uh, basically designing their data science strategy. So looking at all the data they had, how they needed to improve it, what they needed to build out, and then giving them the data science assistance to begin a modeling and targeting program, whether that be for strategy, communications, all of the above. I can see how that would be very, very seductive. In in your book, you describe the moment after the 2016 election of simultaneously being exhilarated because Cambridge Analytica, its clients, your team had won an election and simultaneously horrified because 
the winner of the election was Donald Trump. But that wasn't the moment that you decided to come clean and aid the, the Mueller investigation. That, that was more of a slow burn. Can you describe your, the, the moment or the, the process of conversion in which you realized this, this is not good and has to stop? Yeah, of course. Uh, I would say the the first big thing um, that happened was a month after the election, uh, all of the people at Cambridge Analytica who had actually worked on the Trump campaign. Now, I, I pitched Trump and uh, Corey Lewandowski in 2015, but I was not a part of the Trump campaign or the Trump super PAC. I did not work on those projects at all. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the people in the company that had worked on those projects presented to the rest of us what they had actually done. Because there's FEC firewall laws, which mean that everyone else in the company was not allowed to be in meetings or be copied into emails or really have any idea at all what was being done on a day-to-day -day basis. So all of us are kind of shocked uh, when this happened. And we said, can you please explain what you actually did? Because now I'm getting phone calls from people all over the world that want to hire us and they say, how did you do it? And I actually can't answer the question besides at a top level of like what the company normally does. Mm -hmm. So they put together a two day long presentation, everyone that had worked on the Trump campaign and everyone that had worked on the Trump super PAC, which ran the defeat crooked Hillary campaign, if you remember that one. Mm -hmm. uh, and they told us everything all the data that they had used, how they built the databases, how they built the modeling program, how they did all the targeting, the advertising, uh, all of the places that that fed into. And then they showed examples. And uh, it wasn't too far into the presentation when they showed us this chart that had on uh, one access, you know, how likely you were to be a Hillary or a Trump supporter and then undecided in the middle. And then on the other access, how likely you were to vote. And so if you were pretty likely to vote, like at least 25% or more, um, and you were on the side of Hillary, uh, then they spent an extreme amount of money on this section of people that they called deterrence. And that means to deter people to show up to vote in the first place, which is an obvious voter suppression tactic. Yes. And so I wish that was the worst part of it. Um, from eight, eight to 10 hours for two days, they showed us horrific things. I mean, blatant disinformation campaigns, old videos of Hillary that they had edited to make it seem like she was sick or like she was racist and all of this stuff. And, and then they targeted it at the people that needed to see that in mm -hmm. order to um, no longer feel like they wanted to vote for Hillary at all. And so that was really the, the first thing that made me think, I have to get out of here. I, I can't be a part of this, but I was like, where am I gonna go? The Democrats aren't going to take me back and none of the human rights organizations that I used to work for are gonna take me back either. Uh -huh. I'm completely uh -huh. ostracized, I have nowhere to go. Uh, so I, told Alexander I needed to leave America and I didn't want to be there or a part of his U.S. operations at all anymore. And I asked if I could go open up an office in another country uh, where I could work for whoever I wanted to work for. And he said, yes. So I moved to Mexico City to start Cambridge Analytica Mexico um, and build my entire own team and work for the party that I actually believed in and that I wanted to see win.
Um, and that was the way that I found my way out of there for a little while. And I stayed in Mexico for a year uh, before quitting in Mexico City and uh, going on to become a whistleblower. I, I can follow that. That was a very, very difficult decision and is chronicled in the movie and in the book. You know, you and I met at um, the Collision Conference in Toronto, and it's ironic that it was probably about half an hour after you and I met that a media executive said to me that what Cambridge Analytica did wasn't so bad. It was just targeted advertising, which everybody does, including us in the media industry and the only reason people are upset about Cambridge Analytica is it because they didn't want Trump to win. Uh, but what Cambridge Analytica did on behalf of the Trump campaign was only what everyone does. What do you say to that? <laughs> I say that uh, in most countries around the world, but especially the United States, we have laws against voter suppression. We have laws against incitement of violence and racial hatred. We have laws against uh, disinformation. And uh, all of those tactics were used in the Trump campaign. They were not used <laughs> in the Clinton campaign and they were not used in the Obama campaign. Mm -hmm. I was on the Obama campaign, so I can tell for sure what was used. I can't completely speak for the Clinton campaign besides what I saw publicly. Uh, but on the Obama campaign, we had a rule that said you can only do positive messaging. Uh, so that means we could only endorse Barack Obama's policies. Uh, we could not do anything else. We could not say anything against other Democrats and not even against any Republicans. Uh, we even ended up shutting off comments on our, on our social media pages because we believed that having no comments uh, was better than uh, negative comments about other people or uh, especially some of the crazy violent and racist things that were said against Barack Obama. So a lot of times we just left no public comment because we didn't want, um, we just didn't want any of that to be something that we were hosting on our own page. Uh, right, that's right. all really. Uh, so no, um, what Cambridge Analytica was doing was not something that everyone else was doing. It was definitely more advanced, way more advanced than what advertising companies do. Because what advertising companies do is sell products. If you only sell products to a certain number of people, you're still making revenue for the company as long as they have an ROI from their investment in advertising. Mm -hmm. In politics, you have to sell your idea to half the country or you yes. lose. Mm -hmm. um, so a political campaign is creating a unicorn, a, a billion dollar company within nine to 12 months, having to spend all of the money on convincing half the country of something. It's so much more rigorous. It's so much more uh -huh. detailed. It's so much more technical uh, than what advertising is. Uh, yeah. and, and people need to understand that, that the Trump campaign was sending out tens of thousands of campaigns all about the same topic, but it looked different to every single person that was seeing it or, or to every small group of people that were in a, not just a, you know, a young women's group or an old white guys group. It was very much a, like, you know, you are a 
Ford truck driving, gun owning, uh, Republican voting, middle-aged man in rural Midwest. Like it was a lot more specific. And so there would be tens of thousands of those groups where people had enough data points that were similar to each other where they would receive, receive the same message. Uh, and advertising doesn't, doesn't do that. They usually use like between four to six campaigns at most. Some of mm -hmm. them still do one campaign. Um, so it, it's just it, it's just not the same at all. And advertisers have standards. They have an organization that actually monitors what they're doing and make sure that they don't break the law where the FEC unfortunately has had no teeth to control what Cambridge Analytica or what many other organizations that do something kind of similar in politics uh, have been able to uh, achieve. Uh, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, it seemed like a particularly unconventional statement from this guy and certainly a little self-serving since he's in the media business. It's a conservative viewpoint where, hey, no one was upset when um, the Obama campaign abused the Friends API from Facebook, but people were upset that the Trump campaign did. It's like, well, Barack Obama didn't use it in order to... Um, to get people to burn down synagogues. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that, that wasn't what happened with the data. So yes, it was still a violation of data protection laws, 100%. And that was on both Facebook. I mean, it was number one Facebook's issue because they allowed 40,000 organizations to do this. Um, mm -hmm. But there, there's a difference between once you receive the data um, what you actually do with it. If you abuse the data once you receive it, it gets exponentially worse because then they were breaking a whole host of other laws, not just the data protection laws. Uh, and that, that's where it really, really went wrong. Boris Johnson uh, also, just speaking as the, of the day that uh, we're recording this, gave his last speech in parliament and is resigning. His rise maps to misinformation and Brexit He's a character to perhaps cut from the Steve Bannon mold um, as a as a longtime UK dweller and uh, and someone who follows UK politics and was familiar with the Brexit campaign. What do you make of his resignation? I'm glad. Um, <laughs> it's really time to put someone else there. I I honestly really liked Boris as um, as mayor of London when mm -hmm. I lived there. He was my mayor. And I've met him many times. I thought that, you know, he was he was good for the job at the time. I never thought that he was going to go into higher office, but I wasn't surprised that he did. Um, when he endorsed the Brexit campaign, um, I remember thinking, wow, this campaign actually has the opportunity to win. Um, because regardless of how offensive Boris is, sometimes people love him. Mm -hmm. And I could tell that should he seek something larger that he would get it. Uh, even though I didn't think when he was mayor that that's what was going to happen next. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he's done a terrible job at uh, bringing responsible people into his inner circle. There's been so many issues uh, with scandals left, right, and center. Um, not that any administration ever, you know, doesn't have scandals here or there, but this is, you know, above and beyond what normally happens, and uh, it's embarrassing. So it's time 
that he left. You know, it's been time for a little while. So I'm actually excited to see who's able to replace him. There are some really good candidates, actually, who are good people. I just, I don't know if they're charismatic enough to be head of state, which kind of worries me given Britain's role in a lot of global diplomacy. But we'll, we'll see. Some of these people are incredibly intelligent and incredibly well-meaning and have their their heart and their morals in the right place from as far as I can see. Uh, so, you know, I hope the UK will be much better off with uh, someone else in that seat. Okay, well, we'll know soon enough who that replacement will be. I want to ask you, Brittany, one more question about a, a personality. Uh, and this is a question that was prompted by the last guest that uh, we had on In Reality, Jillian Tett, who pointed out that whistleblowers are overwhelmingly female. Uh, and you can think of yourself, of uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, of Frances Hagen and Sophie Zhang, um, and many, many others going all the way back to the Enron scandal, for example. Uh, why do you suppose that is? And at a clear follow-up question would be seeing the prominence that Cassidy Hutchinson is now, you know, inflicted on herself. What's your advice to her? One, I'm, I'm so glad that Jillian brought that up. I love Jillian Tett, by the way. <laughs> she's one of my absolute favorite people. Yeah, she's great. Um, I'm not surprised by that at all because, what was it, two years ago, I went to, um, I went to D.C. for the what is now like the annual whistleblower day i believe it's july 7th every year and mm -hmm. they invited you know hundreds of whistleblowers uh to uh to the senate in order to honor all of us for the work that we had done and the opening speaker was actually the enron whistleblower she's amazing uh -huh. <laughs> brilliant person and uh i looked around and yeah it was definitely more women than men it was obvious and Trust me, usually when I'm in <laughs> political buildings, it's much more men than women, so it was obvious. <laughs> but uh, I, I really think it comes back to, this is a concept in, in human rights law and in humanitarian operations, but it's called the responsibility to protect. And that is something that is more innate in women um, because we are mothers. And it, it's just a, a concept where you feel like if something's going wrong, that you are responsible for doing something about it. And that if you don't do it, something might get worse or something really even more bad might happen. And therefore it just triggers something in you. It's like, you know, <laughs> seeing your child about to w walk off the, the top of a long set of stairs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I have to do something quick. <laughs> it's really, yes. I, 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 I really feel like um, it, it is just more of, of a natural thing. Um, also the self-sacrifice um, where, you know, in order to protect other human beings, whether they be your children or other people around you, you are willing to completely sacrifice yourself because that's what that's what motherhood is um, in, in the end. And so it's just more of a biological thing. And that's that's an opinion that I can now have being a mother um, where, where I feel that. And I don't know if uh -huh. I would have been able to answer in the same way if you would have asked me two years ago. That is that is very interesting. And now Cassidy Hutchinson has let herself in for uh, you know a world of death threats and um, trolling and all of the stuff that goes with whistleblowing. 
uh, in this era. What's your advice to her? My advice to her would be to keep your inner circle incredibly tight. Um, make sure that there are you're only surrounded by people who uh, who support you and who believe in what you did. Make sure you have someone vet every single journalist that wants to talk to you because some of them are just going to be out to get you and mm. it's going to be a gotcha piece. It's not going to be something that helps you, um, you know, promote your position or uh, get your voice in front of more people. And uh, don't look at social media, <laughs> literally write tweets and have someone else post it, and just don't look at what people are saying because it's not important and it doesn't matter. What wow. you're doing is what matters. Wow, good, good advice. Now, Brittany, unlike many other whistleblowers, some have followed in your path, but not all. Um, and like those who remain committed to the topic that brought them into the public eye, you are committed to um, data security and, and rolling back toxic misinformation. I'm going to ask a, a little bit about the work you're doing now uh, and then some more general topics, but tell us about the Own Your Data Foundation, how much time that takes up of yours and, and what's the goal of the organization? Absolutely. So through the whistleblowing process and spending so much time with legislators and regulators around the world and investigators, of course, uh, what I realized the, the main issue was, was a lack of digital literacy. Um, so I spent most of my time not explaining my evidence, but actually explaining how these technologies work. That was insane. I mean, sometimes I'd be in, um, in a private testimony and they'd start with, uh, can you please define a database? I'm like, okay, well, am how I... long am I going to be here? Am I going to be here <laughs> all day long? Because if you want me to start there, how long is it going to take until we get to advanced predictive analytics and micro-targeting and algorithmic amplification? Like, I, I honestly, I, wow. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you're trying to see whether I have any technical capability or not. And then the further we got, I was like, actually, no, they just, they just don't know how to define it. And therefore I have to teach them before we can get into what my evidence actually says and proves. That, that was an insane process really. And, and what I realized is in order to make, um, you know, sustainable generational change in these topics that we need to really promote digital literacy. And, um, you know, there's there's the long-term generational part, which is, you know, me trying to get more digital literacy education in schools and, you know, training parents to be able to do this at home with their kids. But in the meantime, also getting this into government training programs, into staff training programs, where this should be an essential part of the HR process when new people are onboarded into an organization. And so, um, I partnered with an organization called the DQ Institute. I don't know if you've heard of them. They created the IEEE Global Standard in Digital Literacy Education. They spent mm. about 10 years with all of the world's top experts from ministries and departments of education and, and technology and innovation to think tanks and everyone that you can imagine is on the list, even big tech companies. And everyone was a part of this and they put together an indicator set that includes data rights and cybersecurity, 
media literacy so you can spot fake news and disinformation and hacking and phishing attempts, digital empathy so you can learn how to be nice to other people online but also prevent cyberbullying, uh, screen time management so that you can take care of your mental and physical health while quite obviously being addicted to technology since that's the way that it's designed. All of these concepts um, make up what is your DQ score. So like IQ or EQ, it's a digital intelligence mm -hmm. quotient. And so that's the curriculum that I use when I do lectures at universities, when I do trainings uh, for governments and companies, I do cabinet briefings, I do board briefings, parliamentary briefings, whatever it happens to, whatever happens to be needed, I do workshops at high schools for elementary schools with parents. Uh, so, you know, that's these days, um, I mean, sometimes it takes up 100% of my time for weeks at a time and other times I might only have a couple workshops or, or lectures in that month that are specifically for the foundation uh, as opposed to, you know, lecturing on behalf of one of my portfolio companies or something like that. That is an essential part of something I do nearly every day. You know, these podcasts, talks on stage, press interviews, um, everything. I mean, I, I, I do these every single day. Um, sometimes I'm on a virtual and a physical stage, uh, <laughs> both in the same day. <laughs> so uh, it's, yes. it, it's, a, it, it's a lot, but it's, um, you know, it's so important to me because I really do think that uh, actually people understanding how technology works instead of just how to use it is the most important thing that, that we could do. Where right now you're taught in school, uh, how to use a keyboard and how to search in a search engine, but you're not told that if you're logged into your email and you are typing in a search engine, every single thing that you type will be connected to you forever and will be recorded and bought and sold and traded around the world and end up in millions of databases. And that data will forever uh, help change your digital life and your digital experience. I think if we were told that in school, we would have used technology totally differently in our lifetime. Uh, and so it's about being open and honest with people and with children, especially, so that they can make an educated decision about how they would like to use technology or not. You have answered, I think, in part this sweeping question I'm about to put to you, but let me let me ask it anyway, because I think digital intelligence is only part of the solution. And the question is, how do you put the disinformation genie back in the bottle? The, the Trump campaign and Trump's somewhat problematic relation with factuality has redefined what is acceptable in politics and the harm to the country and, uh, and to the culture and so forth is now manifest. How do you put the genie back in the bottle? What, what steps needs to happen? And it seems to me like this is a generational task, will be decades long, but let me put the question to you, what needs to happen? I mean, it, it, it's a combination of things. And what I like to say, um, which I think helps break down the different streams, or work streams or avenues that need to be followed in order for this to actually change is we need to work on education, legislation, and emerging technologies that solve these problems all at the same time. So uh, on the education front, again, like being able to teach media literacy 
to people so that they understand what is real and what is not. I, I'm actually on the, the board of uh, one company called uh, Bywire News, and it's an app where you can upload or, or scan any news piece, and it will bring it through a, a series of algorithms. They, they've actually built this with Cambridge University and a lot of incredible data scientists. And it tells you how likely that piece of news is to be real or fake um, hmm. and from zero to 100%. And so you can tell if it's, if it's um, news and fact-based or if it's very much opinion-based and has a bias and is trying to convince you of something. So it might mm -hmm. not be that the facts are untrue, but it's not a news article. It, is, it should be an op-ed, but it's being presented as news. Um, mm -hmm. So it helps you become a more conscious consumer of, uh, of digital content. And so I think, um, I think that is a huge part of media literacy, being able to have new technologies that help assist this. On the legislative side, God, there's a lot of work to do there, uh, but it mostly has to do with the regulation of social media companies and then companies like Google that have search feeds. And so thinking about how those algorithms work open sourcing them, finding the most ethical way um, for information to show up at the top of a news feed or at the top of a, a search engine. And it shouldn't be just who paid the most amount of money uh, because that's what it is. I mean, one of the main mm -hmm. tactics of the Trump campaign was to just throw money at all of the top AdWords. And so like the Trump campaign owned a lot of the top search terms for Hillary and therefore instead of seeing Hillary Clinton's uh, position on a certain topic, you'd see the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign's opinion of what Hillary thought on that topic. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly dangerous that that is possible to do. Uh, uh -huh. And so regulation of that and what you see on social media and being able to open source that uh, and change that is going to be a, a huge, huge difference. And of course, funding real media. <laughs> Everyone yeah. should be funding real media organizations. It ne never has broken my heart more than when I go into, um, you know, uh, an incredible news organization. Like last time I was in the 60 Minutes office, for instance, I go in and like half of the place is empty because they can't afford to pay those people anymore. And these are some of the best investigative journalists in the world, and they can't afford them um, because of what Trump's fake news disinformation campaign created yes uh that's particularly particularly damaging to local news which is i mean just many places are news deserts now that used to be served by you know energetic small local news organizations and now right. you know with nothing. real journalists that have yes. uh that have laws that they have to adhere to you're not allowed to print disinformation uh, or yes, a professional standards. It's you, yes. If you lie, you get fired. That uh, exactly. is what happens in journalism. Prosecuted. Yes. You can get prosecuted. It's a crime. Yes. yes. <laughs> I see so much despair uh, about the possibility of a return to shared reality. You've just outlined a huge amount of work that needs to be done and a huge amount of change that needs to happen before we can real the situation we're in back to something like uh you know at least a unified sense of reality how do you feel do you are you hopeful do you think that this attitude of despair is simply uh, exhaustion with polarization or 
have enough people realize the work that needs to be done that it will happen. Well, uh, <laughs> it's always a, a smaller number of people that are doing this type of work because it is exhausting and it is highly technical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I welcome anyone that that wants to get involved. Tons of people reach out to me and you know to to see what they can volunteer for or where jobs exist in this type of, uh, in this realm of activism. And so I'm always happy to help and point people in the right direction um, to, to different initiatives they can get involved with or what you can do at a local level. Uh, but I, I'm incredibly optimistic. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to do this. Uh-huh. I, I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to become a whistleblower if I didn't think I could change something. Um, All right. You know, the type of risk if you don't think um, you can actually fix the problem. Uh, so yes. I, you know, and that's why I work across education and legislation and, and technology. I mean, I, I talked more about my education work, but I, I have done more legislative drafting and lobbying than almost anyone in the United States on, uh, on digital asset policy. So from data protection and privacy um, to digital asset definitions, blockchain technology law. I've helped write um, or pass uh, over 40 different laws. Um, we've passed about 25 of them. And uh, in the past four years, that's that's a lot of good. And then, you know, there's tons of other laws that have been derivatives of what, um, what I've helped write in certain states that have now been repurpose in other states and in other countries. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of legislative work that's going on. A lot more needs to be done at the federal level in the United States. Uh, and the political polarization makes that very difficult, but I, I think we will get somewhere um, in the next year or two. And then on the um, on the technology side, you know, I, I either sit on the board of directors or on the advisory board of now, I think 25 different companies that are emerging technology tech. So whether they're um, working on digital identity or uh, data protection or consent mechanisms and permission structures or uh, quantum resistant encryption, these are all things that I work on. And uh, I, I think that technology is gonna solve the problem faster than legislation or education, but, but we need to do all of it at once. So you have confirmed uh, what I think any thinking person would realize is that this is a sprawling, huge problem, and yet one that um, anyone who has that protective gene that you mentioned uh, a, a while ago of feeling like this is a problem that needs to be solved, and if we don't do it, who will? So we're ending on a note of optimism, uh, and uh, I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on In Reality. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate that. And if anyone wants to get involved, you can follow me on Twitter at OwnYourDataNow uh, and just send me a message and let me know you're interested in this. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, which is LinkedIn um, slash OwnYourData, uh, or you can write to me at info at OwnYourData.Foundation. Thank you, Brittany. You've been listening to In Reality the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Schoenberg. Thanks for listening. If you too care about the assault on truth in the digital era, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. One more note. This podcast was made possible by the terrific production team at Podcast Partners. Special thanks to my producers, Amelia Spooner and Paula Robel. If you like how it sounded, 
Learn more at podcastpartners.com.